Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of our podcast called The Edge. Um, today, I'm flying solo again. Um, John's left me on my own. I, I don't have a wingman, but I'm very happy to say I'm here with Gina Yacon today. I'm very excited. I, I saw a recent video of you. I think um, it was a LinkedIn Live or something, and you were really bubbly, and it reminds me a little bit of me. Um, so I'm going to kick off with the first question I do on, on every one of these podcasts is kind of give me a little bit of background about yourself. How did you get started and how did you get to where you are today? Yes. Well, hello, everyone. And thanks for having me a part of the show. I'm really excited to be here. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and some really amazing players that I feel like I'm kind of following up, like, you know, like Lisa Lorenzo, right? Like some some really powerhouses in the industry. So I'm really happy to be here. To answer your question, um, I am not one of those professionals that was born into cybersecurity and or technology. Um, when I was going to college, cybersecurity was not a degree. It was nothing. You would have to go through maybe engineering. Maybe there was some computer science, um, but a lot of those were like electives. So to be honest, my first degree is in political science. I got it from the University, in, uh, University of Miami. And now I'm getting, I'm just finishing my master's degree in cybersecurity. Um, you know, almost 20 years later, don't tell anybody, but um, from University of New Hampshire. So I'm just finishing my capstone there. And the reason why I got that is because um, really looking at the workforce, I was having interns that were having their master's in cyber. And I only had certifications and experience. Experience, which is okay, but when you're trying to become a leader in cybersecurity, you kind of want to stay ahead of the Joneses, if that makes sense. Um, but my first career was um, working at a law firm. Um, I am still a licensed private investigator in the state of Florida, which is my home state, and I was working high-profile crimes. So what does that actually mean uh, is I was given the great opportunity to factually work up cases. So while the lawyers had to do all like the legal stuff. I was pounding the pavement, interviewing witnesses, factually working up the cases, looking for that documentary evidence and things like that. So that when the case would go to trial, that the the table of facts or ta we call it table of proof was uh, really, um, really hammered out uh, so that we, you know, look sharp when we were at trial. So um, a lot of my background with that is in high profile um, criminal defense. So it'd be violent crime, sex crime, financial crime, those types of things. Um, and it, I did it for 14 years out of Tampa, Florida, and had a lot of trial experience. It actually has helped me in my career immensely today um, because I had 14 years of legal experience. So thinking about that um, and, and understanding risk and liability and all of that um, has is really, really helpful where I am today and speaking to different types of audiences, as well as when you're prepping for trial, you have to talk to an audience, um, which are the jurors. Um, and we always say, sixth grade education, you try to bring it to a sixth grade education when you're speaking um, to juries. So because of that, we're able to take very complex topics and translate it, just like cybersecurity that I do today, take really complex topics, try to translate it to, you know, a, a, the end user to, you know, mid professionals or practitioners to executives and everybody in between. Um, so I really value 
my first career inside uh, in uh, you know do working at a law firm um also it gave me a good technical background so a lot of people don't realize that maybe people at a law firm have to deal with a lot of tech because from a cybersecurity perspective sometimes law firms are some t- soft targets maybe not the top law firms out there but you know mid grade to maybe small and medium business they are a soft target but they actually do know a lot about IT because a lot of a civil case or a criminal case has an IT component so you think about computer forensics chain of custody all of that so i was able to kind of learn through that realm um and not knowing that i was doing um IT aspects it was just part of my job um but that's basically kind of how i got into IT and then a recruiter i was just thinking about what my next where i was going to go to next was i going to be an attorney or was i going to change careers like what was i going to do and i talked to a recruiter and he <laughs> always saw that I was talking tech on LinkedIn and other things. And so what did he say? He said, we do not have enough women in cybersecurity. Start training up. You can make a lot of money. And this is where you should go next. And you know what? I have not looked back since. I'm very excited to be here. Okay. So I had a script I, I had a script for this and you've just blown my script out of the water because there's so many more interesting things I want to talk <laughs> about. And and we'll get on to women in technology in a minute because that's always a difficult topic to talk about, but 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 we'll do it. Um but I mean I want to kind of talk a little bit about the analytical thinking and that technology kind of thinking. One of the biggest issues that I've had or seen throughout my career in, in 25 years as a customer before going to the dark <laughs> side was that technology people find it really hard when they're then sat in meetings with managers or board members and, and, and stuff like that. And having the ability to to dumb it down, I'll call it, which is a, not a great term because they're not no. dumb, um, but being able to take that real kind of technical background and that all of those technical facts and not just scare people, not just kind of going in and, and frighten the board there is a lot of that around as well that cyber folks going in frighten the board to spend money and I, I don't agree with that either but I'm, I'm it's a funny journey that you've taken I mean we've had a lot of people on the podcast and you're the first person that kind of hasn't gone in the traditional kind of start off in IT support start off in infrastructure and then end up where they are so it's quite an intriguing but now I know more about it it makes sense it makes sense that it's about fact finding. It's about collecting all the detail and it's about then presenting a case. Isn't that the truth? You just boiled it down perfectly. So when you think about cybersecurity, a lot of times we think about maybe a framework, maybe it comes from NIST or ISO or the CIS, the Center for Internet Security, a certain type of framework. And there's these statements in the framework. So say it's something like, you know, multi-factor is enabled, right? So a lot of times when I go into um, an environment and say I was, you know, my I did do auditing as well as assessment work. So, but when you when you think about that, you go in and you have that statement and you have to prove it out, right? The company has to prove it out. So how do you do that? The same way that I used to do it, uh, that our firm did it for trial, right? We would have somebody who was testifying. So that would be whoever that witnesses. So say we were interviewing somebody from IT regarding this multi-factor kind of example. 
So they would be your person who's interviewing and, or, or testifying to that. And then they prove through documentary evidence or artifacts in the cybersecurity realm. So it's building out that table of proof. Does these facts support this statement? Yes or no. So legal, my legal background has helped me immensely in terms of really trying to look at a problem differently. And I think what you know what you were saying before, and I'll and I'll take five steps back when I also take cybersecurity differently. And maybe that's because I didn't, I wasn't born into an a traditional IT role. Um, I lived for 14 years living in very dark with a lot of dark cases when you're thinking sex crime you know, violent crime and even financial crime or drugs or things like that. That's a, it's a, it's very dark and cybersecurity can also be dark, but um, you know, unless you're like, is there people at risk, maybe at a hospital, things like that. Most companies do not need to take themselves as seriously as they do because we, it's really cybersecurity is relationship building and building bridges and creating a good and healthy cybersecurity culture. And I don't think fear is a uh, is a great way to incentivize in the long run. So that may work for a short short term goal or you know maybe a company or a person is utilizing a recent breach to maybe get that budget to do a scare, you know, some type of scare tactic. And that that does work for a very short period of time. Um, so but you should not always lead with the sky is falling. Um, because yes, it is, but it's also not. And as long as you have great people at the table and great processes and tools to support those people and processes, you know, at, the organization together should be able to conquer anything. Um, and so that's putting people first, relationships first, and allowing people to have a great seat at the table, if that makes sense. Yeah, so I'm going to kind of pivot to a, 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 a difficult topic, a difficult question, and it's women in, in tech. And uh, I don't like avoiding these kind of subjects, so I'm going to ask a question. And, and you said a number of things in, in what you've just said about documentation. I mean. I'm going to generalize, so please don't think I'm talking sexist, but I'm going to generalize and say that men don't read documentation. Like we don't read instructions when we build cupboards. And the amount of times I've sat down with with my girlfriend and, and we've had an IKEA catalog and I'm trying to build a cupboard and she's like, read the instructions and we don't do it. Well, they're different language I, I, anyways, aren't they? So, you know, there's yeah. that. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm a massive advocate for different races, different colors, different creeds, different sexes to be in, in our community. And, and I've spent 25 plus years in IT. And for the first probably 20 of those, I would go on a training course and there would not be a single female. There'd probably not be a person of color. We'd all be white men of the same age. But the problem I see with that is we all think the same. We're all clones. A problem comes along we all have the same way of solving the problem. Guess why? Because we're all identical. And I think it's imperative to have different people in, from different backgrounds to think differently. And, and what you've just said really has highlighted that. You think differently because you came into it with a different approach. But the difficult question is, do you think you think differently also about things because you are a female and because you dealt with cases to do with 
sexual abuse and all that nasty stuff. Do you think it gives you a different mindset and you approach things differently? Oh, that is such a great question. Um, I've only worked in male dominated fields, legal, um, and now it cybersecurity. Um, and I've had a lot of, let's just say not all it or is professionals like love my bubbly personality right so a lot of times i come in and i'm immediately kind of dismissed as being a subject matter expert or they think i'm in sales and marketing you know i am somebody who probably shouldn't have a seat at the table but maybe i do because I am a token female. Um, so it's really difficult. Um, I feel like a lot of times I have to reintroduce myself and have show my accomplishments, show that, you know, most of the time they'll find me on a conference stage being very vulnerable and open to a lot of hard questions because I do have opinion on what's happening in the world of cybersecurity. And I really am trying to help those that might be behind me um, have, a, you know, a seat at the table and rise them up um, as we progress this industry. I think uh, we were doing really, really well. And then COVID came along and a lot of women had to exit the workforce. Um, luckily, I, you know, was still here, but I saw a lot of women have to exit because of the stress of the pandemic, taking care of a family, trying to keep work, yeah. things like that. So I do feel like we've taken a couple steps back because of the pandemic, but I'm hoping, I really do hope that in the future that we have more diversity. And I think that that's really important because when we think about the complexity of cybersecurity, we need to have people, maybe maybe some of the men aren't reading their policies and procedures, right? But maybe we have to have that element to have really good business continuity. Because what happens if all the IT staff left one day, right? We had the great recession or great uh, resignation, I'm sorry, um, you know, in the, recently, right? So we had a lot of turnover. So making sure that an organization from a business continuity perspective has that documentation in place so that they can, you know, prevail. Maybe that is having some really good technical writers and people that are listening um, from a compliance and or just really operation um, standpoint. Even if we take compliance out of it and the auditing out of it, a really good IT or information security, you know, organization, just looking at that also needs documentation, regardless if they think they do or not. And that's really just from a business continuity perspective. And to, for people to understand their roles and responsibilities, people like to know what, where they stand, what they should do, you know, those types of the human element of um, that is really important to people also really yeah. will help with retention. Yeah, I mean, I'm excited by the fact that things are changing and it's not everyone that's a clone. It, that really excites me. And and I'd love to see where we are like in a, in the next couple of years. But I'm, I'm going to, I mean, that's a topic I could talk about and I'm sure I'll invite you back on another podcast because I could talk about that topic for a long time. And I'd like to get Lisa back and maybe you and Lisa can do a podcast together because it's it's a really interesting topic. And it's one that 
we shouldn't shy away from having the conversation no, about. And um, I I'm, lived I'm, together, not lived together, but lived in the same city, Raleigh, North Carolina, and we were part of all the different um, boards. You know, like a B sides RDU. Cool. She would speak at ISSA. So um, all, all those types of you know organizations, IT, or she is a pillar in the cybersecurity community. And I moved yeah. now to Denver, so I don't get to see her as often, but um, loved hearing her. So. Well, I think one thing I'll say on the topic before we move on to my next question is every female that I've ever met in cyber or in IT has been better than a lot of the men. And and I remember asking a close friend of mine why that was the case. And I said to her, why do you think that's the case? And she said, because we have to be better because we're constantly having to prove that we should have a seat at the table. I could not agree with you more or agree with her more, I guess. Um, I have to work twice as hard. I have to per always be more prepared. Um, I need to know sources and things because I will be um, just challenged more. And I'm actually okay with it. Yeah. Challenge me, right? I, I think that that has made me become an SME in different areas. It makes me able yeah. to speak uh, to audiences that I never potentially thought I could. And it's because I've had to kind of rise above it. And because now I'm okay with being uncomfortable in certain situations, yeah. it's easier for me now. And so now I don't want to say I don't care, but it's because I had to work harder um, that it's yeah. really making my career easier now. So like I said, it's a great topic. Um, but let's let's pivot. So, so my next question is really about the CISO role in itself. I mean, I, I ask a lot of people on the podcast this: like, who should the CISO report to? I have my opinions. You may have heard them on the podcast, but who do you think the CISO should report to? And is it black and white? Is it this person or that person, or 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 does it change depend on the okay. company? Well, how about I think it's evolving. Um, I I think the uh, CISO or information security officer, they're going to um, have to truly be at that C level and not under a CIO or a CTO or, or CFO. God, you see it in all different realms. And the reason why I think it's evolving is because um, we're seeing uh, that, you know, SEC as well as uh, New York Department of Financial Services are requiring more board representation and understanding of cybersecurity and the posture. And so because the board has to be involved um, from like a, a regulatory standpoint, they're going to start asking more questions. And because that CISO will really have to, I mean, they probably now also report into the board quarterly or whatever that looks like, I think it's going to become more of a defined role, as well as a role where CISOs are going to be able to be a little bit more transparent on the organization because they're not under somebody else. And because they yeah. will have that kind of C-level, true C-level representation, um, as opposed to being um, kind of stifled under maybe a CIO or CFO or CTO, um, I think that CISOs will be given an opportunity to 
educate the board more, talk to the board, provide more maybe um, education from, uh, you know, articles or, um, you know, white papers or, or things like that so that the board is more equipped to ask the right questions. And once we see, yeah. you know, I always think that we have to put our audience in a position of power. We never want to go into a meeting and talk down to our audience. We really should want to have that an understanding. And so if we put our board in a position of power, it then also challenges us to be better, to create, a, have a better cybersecurity posture, and if not, be able to adequately explain why not. Or why not now, you know, be able to yeah. roadmap better. So I, I'm i seeing, I'm hopeful within the next oh, maybe two to five years that CISOs will have a better, they will truly have a, a better seat at the table in front of the board and maybe that they will maybe get out from underneath uh, one of the C-levels that they might be under now. Yeah, see, I think, I mean, well, in fact, I know cyber kind of evolved out of IT. I mean, we had IT, then we kind of have information security, and then we had cyber. So it kind of made sense that for a while security sat under the CIO. Um, but I see that as you're kind of marking your own homework. I mean, don't get me wrong, the CISO and the CIO need to work hand in hand. There needs to be a, a, a great relationship because actually, the CISO, in a lot of cases, doesn't have budget, doesn't have resource. They're going to rely on that IT infrastructure CIO's team to deliver projects. But I've also seen where the CISO reports to the CIO, and it's just a box-ticking exercise. It's just a pass or audit. They're not actually making progress with security. It's simply just a case of, don't tell the board too much about me, please, because I'm your boss. And that 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 no longer is going to work. I couldn't um, agree more with you. And okay. also, you know, to the other point, I also think that there'll be an evolution in budget as well. So I, I see a couple of things happening. Um, so one, I am seeing still silos of IT, IS or information, you know, security or cyber, as well as cloud. So I'm seeing these kind of silos, but I think in the future, it's, it will start kind of wrapping into, uh, especially yeah. if we think about SASE and Zero Trust and things like that. It is an IT and IS problem. And so I do see that there needs to be more of a synergy. So we'll see. So you actually bring up the next buzzword that I wanted to talk about. And uh, that buzzword, Zero Trust, because I can't come on a podcast and, and not talk about it because it's everywhere at the moment. I mean, we've spoken to Chase. We've spoken to John. Everybody we talk to is talking about Zero Trust. And I've worked in IT long enough to know that a lot of these buzzwords just don't have any teeth. But actually, I, I think this one does. Um, so what do you think about zero trust? And do you see it being something that people are talking about? I mean, it's just starting to come into the UK. But where do you think it is in the US? And where do you think it's going to go? So in my organization, we talk zero trust and SASE weekly, at a minimum with clients. Um, and so I think there's a lot of room for improvement in terms of what is sassy and what is zero trust and and what is the different uh, the difference between the framework versus the architecture. And so a lot of times um, it's it's really understanding the conversation where it becomes very complex is that a lot of times we'll see 
even a client use sassy wrong or zero trust wrong. And they're talking, you know, maybe about a pillar of the zero trust. Maybe they're talking about identity and access management, or maybe they're talking about application security or their firewall or things like that. But they're util- they're throwing in the words now that like marketing was doing, right? And so coming back to the client and being like, well, what is your definition of sassy? What defines success for you in this realm? And really understanding, you know, what the differences are, because I think that I think it will evolve and we'll have more of a streamlined focus. But right now, each of the vendors have different, you know, views on it. My company has a view on it. Right. Clients have a view on it. And so I do think it's something that is still emerging. However, there is a lot of momentum. So when we were thinking about, I think it was 2019, um, President Biden did an executive order where he actually outlined that, you know, federal, um, you know, military and and federal services really need to start looking at zero trust. And since then, we really have started to see a momentum in conversation. And it really, it, it also, I think the pandemic helped really kind of bring this um uh, these ideas and concepts and and now frameworks you know to more of light because we really do need to meet the end users where they are so when we're thinking about that you know a lot of people did not go back to the office after the pandemic they are working at a starbucks or a hotel or their rv or their home right and so we really do need to think about future architecture. However, this is not something that happens overnight. And I think that that's something that we all have to really level set on to. So when we, it's not a, it's not a button, it's not one solution. It's, 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 it's a, it's a lot of stuff that goes in and there's also a lot of players. And I think when a lot of times we lead with sassy or zero trust being a security play, but it's an everything play. It brings in cloud, it brings yep. in infrastructure, brings in security. So I'm hoping that this also will help build bridges um, and, and conversations. Yeah, I mean, there are a number of things out there. I mean, I, I started the role I'm doing now about a year ago, and really the transition was because of zero trust. And we we obviously did the podcast series, Breaking Down Zero Trust. And I now know that the CSA are doing a lot of work towards zero trust and working with John Kindervag and Chase and a few other people. Um, I saw you recently on LinkedIn. You were with George oh, Finney, and obviously we had him on the podcast. Yes. Uh, and and for anyone that hasn't picked up his book, you should pick up his book. It talks more about the people element of zero trust, and I think that's very important. This is about education. Um, and I totally agree with with what you've said in regards to zero trust. It's not a product. You, you can't just go and buy a product. There are a number of products and technologies that will help you. But I truly believe that you need to educate people and not just people in business. You need to educate everyone about cyber. The world's changed. We need to start the younger generations. We need to educate everyone. So in five years time, in 10 years time, it's not just a buzzword. It's part of the culture of business. Oh, I love that. I um, love that. The culture, right? It's a culture thing. It's a it's a, it's a way yeah. of thinking. Um, and and we really do. It's definitely zero trust and sassy is a disruptor right now. I mean, it really is disrupting a tra- the traditional sense of 
IT infrastructure. So I do see yep. some pain points of, of um, I don't want to say um, getting IT infrastructure on board. I think that they know that they have to get on board. But I also think we need to put them in a position of power to understand the why. Um, a lot of times, I always call them layer three guys, right? You know, my layer three guys out there, you know, they're so used to, um, you know, a certain idea of, you know, the castle and the moat and defense in depth for their environment. And, and that's great. And that still kind of applies, right? But um, we have to meet our users where they are. We have to think about the future. And I mean, when we're even thinking of the future, we have quantum to think about. And we have so many things. Yeah. So when we're, it's it's the right time right now to roadmap either your sassy journey, your zero trust journey, which, you know, both can be also co combined in certain capacities, right? But, you know, thinking about that and what does our, our two-year roadmap look like, right? So we don't burden our people and we can create a the right processes around it and find the right partners that also mesh with um, our cybersecurity goals or IT goals in the future, so... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've said this many times, and I shouldn't really admit to it, but probably 20 years of my career, I, I, I made the problem worse. Oh. I mean, I, I worked in M&A, which we'll get onto in just a second, but I did a lot of M&A. I did a, like, a lot of site openings, and we just bolted networks together and went, oh, we're all inside the castle. We'll just make the castle wall a little bit bigger. And we'll, we're, all, we're all safe. Everyone inside the castle was safe, and everyone outside wasn't safe. But, but well, I mean, we may still have castles. Some offices still exist, but your people aren't in them anymore. They're out in the farms or the other villages or sat in Starbucks. And you, you need you, we need to think differently. And it, I don't want to say this out loud, but I'm going to. But a lot of IT folks are set in their ways. They've spent tens of thousands of dollars learning technology. They've funded themselves. They've gone out and got certifications or they've trained and they don't want to do it again. You don't want to get to somewhere where you've been in your career for 20 or 25 years and you need to go out and relearn. It's difficult. It's harder when you're older. So there are a lot of quite stubborn people out there that see this as a little bit of a, I don't want to do it. What What's wrong with the model that we've got today? But fundamentally, if you dig deep into the model that we've got today, it doesn't work. Um, but let's let's go on to M and A because I, I could talk about zero trust all day. But I saw you wrote an article recently about M and A, and I've spent twenty five plus years doing M and A, like due diligence, budget planning, integration planning, and then the integrations. Security was never thought never. about. I mean, I when I say never, that's unfair. I used to think about the risk. I used to think about the fact that I'm company A and I've just bought company B. I don't trust anybody in company B. I don't want to just put them on my network with their devices. I don't want to just slam stuff together. But I always got overruled, or in a lot of cases, I got overruled. I was told, company's not going to function unless you start integrating. And in the initial days, it would be, I'd have a 100-day plan. And they'd be like, you've got 100 days. And then it will be like, uh, we need email like on day one. They need the same email address. And then it'll be like, oh, they need to get to the internet to look at all the HR documents on day one. And all they need to do reporting, at least at the end of the first month. And I was, pa I'd panic and I'd be like, well, I've spent 
10 years securing my network with my castle suddenly you want me to throw all the doors open and just go there fine and they'll be and and a lot of the times i'd be told well you did your due diligence and i'm like yeah but i always kick the tires of a car but it doesn't mean to say i'm not going to have a proper look when i get home like i'm going to take it to a garage and get them to look at it so what what are you seeing are you seeing with m a now that security is more on the agenda oh, i wish i wish um I think this is also an area that's uh, evolving and and potentially will be changing over time. And and the reason why I think that um, is is when we look at even the SEC potential, uh, you know, um, regulation that'll come out where you might have to report a breaches within four days with the who, what, when, where, why type of, you know, um, aspect, which is, I feel like very impossible unless you truly have a, a very, a great handle on your data security and where it's going. Um, but those organizations are, are also going to, uh, because of that responsibility, and because they're publicly traded and a breach of that magnitude would be considered material to stakeholders, um, I think that there will be a little bit more attention. Um, yes, I see most companies doing their you know, due diligence, maybe even sending them like a due diligence questionnaire or a SIG or a CAKE or whatever that is to the potential organization ahead of time. But that's all paper, right? You, it's that, that's like a trust, but no verification. So I am seeing some organizations push back a little bit to do, you know, at least dark web searches and, and reputation searches. But to the specificity that's really needed, um, when you think about a financial audit um, for M&A and all of that, it is so in detail. And I think a lot of times this is where it's training are the financial team and executives. So if we had more of a presence at the board, we you know, we can educate yeah. them on what is technical debt and what does technical debt mean to the organization or what does risk mean? It's different for this organization versus bringing them in, folding them with us. And now we're a bigger organization that might be publicly traded or da, 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 da. It's now a different risk level. And so it because you have to evaluate those things as companies are brought in. Things do change. You know, you are, it is four steps back. For me, MA though, um, again, it's a creating a culture of trust as well as communication. So I think it's very unfair when uh, organizations do an MA without basically telling the IT team and not them enough yeah. time that's it's disrespectful to the it team and what they do and it's also it makes their job seem like they're just have to flip a switch right it's so easy it's an easy button oh yeah just fold them in just give them access oh yeah i mean this is business right no it, it's 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 a lot more to that it's a lot of planning it's a lot of effort um and so i think it's truly unfair to just burden, keep on burdening IT teams. We're smaller than ever. A lot of organizations do not have enough resources, huge talent gap. And so you keep on punching your team, you know, they're eventually going to quit. So I'm hoping to also have a change there and have a proper, proper way to utilize um, cybersecurity as a competitive advantage. Because I also think that executives need to realize that they can utilize things they find on the dark web and technical debt as, 
you know, financial gains and when they're negotiating the sell price and things like that. So they can leverage that. And I don't even think a lot of these companies would see it coming because they're leveraging, you know, a different way of doing a financial audit or reasoning um, when they're trying to acquire a company. I mean, you've raised some great points and it it reminds me of those like late night sat in offices panicking over stuff that we've just found out. Um, but I mean, companies aren't, when you're selling your company or you're being bought, you really don't want to give the buyer all the information. And it sounds unfair, but businesses want to get the best price they can. So they're not going to tell you they got breached at a certain point or they've got that site over there and the door's always open or you can walk in the warehouse or the email system got hacked or what they're just not going to tell you. And the amount of times we we'd like I'd get a tiny little bit of due diligence, I'd ask a couple of questions, I'd get some answers. I mean, it's all oh, we're buying, and I'd be like, if you let me do a proper investigation and I can do a proper deep dive into this company. You may be able to knock millions off the price. And also, if companies start to get used to the fact that when they go up for sale, they're going to get millions knocked off the price if they're not secure, maybe they'll get more secure as well. Um, but I think it's an evolution. I mean, we, we talked before that cyber is new. I mean, in relative terms, it evolved out of IT. So my experience is we would do acquisitions of businesses and there was no security team. They, they they knew they were going to be up for sale for a period of time. It was expensive to go and get a CISO or a security team, so they just didn't bother. So there weren't there was nobody you could ask questions to. And and I guess the good thing is if they didn't have a security team, you add some of your answers That's already. True. Um but okay, let, let's pivot again. I mean, I'm looking down at the clock thinking, wow, time is flying. When you're having um, fun, right? Got, it's because you're having so well, fun. Absolutely. <laughs> um I want to ask a little bit about kind of the recession. Um, There's talk everywhere about prices are going up, supply chain problems. We've got Ukraine and Russia situation. Everything's going a little bit kind of Pete Tong. And Pete Tong's an English phrase. Pete Tong rhymes with wrong. So everything's going a little bit kind of haywire at the moment. A lot of my friends and colleagues are getting calls about budget problems and cut budgets and stuff. What are you advising businesses? How would you advise businesses to kind of recession proof? And I saw another blog that you did about getting the best out of technology. I can't remember exactly what you phrased it, but it was about getting the best out of your your purchases in technology. But what other advice can you offer people as as we're starting to see things not yeah. great? So one, I, I think not great is totally, uh, you know, what is perception versus reality, right? Um, I think we are, I don't know if the sky is truly falling, right? And a lot of organizations prevailed during our last recession. I mean, gosh, they were more profitable than ever. And COVID, a lot of organizations were profitable than ever. Um, I do see some right turning um, or right siding or however you want to say it um, in terms of, you know, maybe some organizations were aggressive in, you know, maybe uh, hiring salespeople and things like that um, to the organization. We're seeing some layoffs in the tech aspect on on, on maybe HR and marketing and, and sales teams and things like that. But from a, and I guess we are seeing some from some um, consulting firms. We are seeing some people that maybe didn't hit their billable numbers or are not 
fully billable that are also getting the acts right now. But um, I think some of that is just natural. Um, and I think that we just have to kind of realize that that's kind of what happens to organizations every couple of years. Um, a lot of people use the the potential, in, you know, or the true inflation or the potential for a, a recession as, as an excuse. But I think it's, it's right sizing uh, every couple of years anyways. I think though organizations, uh, if, if I am seeing that a lot of organizations have budget freezes, um, maybe they're not getting the headcount that they want um, unless they can find a legitimate reason. So-and-so they haven't had a, a CISO for a long time, or, you know, maybe um, they need somebody who's billable and 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 they can do that, utilize them that way. Um, but I'm seeing a lot of kind of holds in place. So what can organizations do with that? You know, I always think as controversy as opportunity. So this is a good time yeah. For IT professionals, information security professionals, you know, if they have a seat at the table and have to work with budget, is to really think about spring cleaning. You know, look at your technology stack. Ask your users, you know, is this shelf life? Is it working for the team? Because that's really important. Tools should help the people be able to do the processes that are needed, right? But the people aspect of it is so important. So doing a, you know, kind of a spring cleaning on their tech stack, what's working, what's not, what are the SLAs? Are the companies I'm working for fulfilling those SLAs? So for example, if they're not, that's really good when you're doing your budget negotiations, you know, your renewal, right? Just like we were talking about M&A, you can knock off some millions, right? If they didn't have a secure posture, right? They have so much technical debt. Well, here, if the company has been breaching their contract and their SLAs, that is a good leveraging tool. You know, that's very boring to do, right? Is to audit yourself. Not a lot of people like to do that, but if you do it right, you're going to be in a competitive advantage. You're going to prove to the CFO and to the board that they can trust you with a budget, that you are making appropriate choices. So I think you can utilize it to a um, competitive advantage that you are doing what you do, that you are um, you know, a trusted um, custodian of the money. Um, and, and there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, I never like to hear about people getting laid off. I never like those situations. I mean, I've had to lay people off in my past, and I never like that. Um, but I am a positive person, and I always try and look at an opportunity, no matter how bad a situation may be. And although the pandemic was horrific for a lot of people, it did create this massive technology advancement. And recessions do the same. I mean, even wars create massive advancement in technology, and 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 nobody thinks a war is good. But you, you have to, in in hard times, you need to be proactive. You need to get the best out of the people, and you need to get the best out of your technology. And I, I remember sitting down and and being asked to lay a, a group of people off. I was running a help desk at the time, a support team. And and I'm like, okay, how much money do we need to save? And I got given a number. And I'm like, if I can get that number in another way, can I keep the staff? And they were like, well, and I'm like, look, it's about the money. Right. Like, 
I don't have underperforming staff. We would have dealt with underperforming staff in a different way. I don't have underperforming staff. You're asking me to put people's family lives at risk and everything else. You're asking me to sit down and and, and pick a name out of a hat and, and choose to change someone's life. And you just need to save a number. So if I can go out and save the number in a different way, can I keep the staff? I mean, it was a hard conversation because they were making layoffs across the whole business. And, and there were they said, well, there are going to be questions on why the IT team didn't lay people off. And I'm like, okay, give everybody else the same challenge. If you can save however much out of your budget, your choice is lay people off or save money. I love it, like, and, I and, love it. And it's also, you took a problem and looked at it differently. And I, I absolutely challenge everybody that, you know, it's really easy to kind of go with what you know and, and the easy button. It, yep. it really is important to challenge yourself, challenge. I love how you even had the organization hopefully challenge other division leaders. I think that that's really important because we should put people first because we need to retain them. We need to grow them yeah. um, and and we need to protect our um, digital assets at our company. So, And and to be honest, there, there were layoffs across the business, but there were a lot less layoffs. I never laid anybody off. I sat down with my team and I said, look, my choices are to lay some of you off or we need to make things cheaper. I negotiated some contracts with some some like high vendors. I negotiated with them for longer terms so that we paid the same amount, but over say fourteen months instead of twelve. The team did a, did some free work instead of getting paid extra for working on weekends. They were like, "We'll we'll we'll we're happy to take a little bit of a cut in the short term rather than lose our jobs completely." Um, and I, I I didn't lay anybody off in it. And I reckon we probably laid a third of the people off that were going to be planned because not every department or division stepped up. And some of them had poor performing people. And if people are performing badly and you've done everything you can, maybe what's best for them is they're actually in the wrong job. And therefore a layoff maybe isn't a bad thing, but just just by picking a number and saying we need to save 10% and you need to get rid of five people doesn't always work. Um, okay, so we have only about five minutes left, I think, by looking oh, wow. at the clock. I'm going to ask you some uh, some fun questions. For, the first question is, will you come back again? And I hope oh, you yes, absolutely. I, I didn't even realize how it did go by so quickly. I love this conversation. Oh. You made it very easy. Um, just just talking to you. I, I I really did enjoy it. So thank you. Well, there's a, there's a bunch more I'd like to dig deeper on. I mean, I had some stuff on mental health and cyber burnout and, and I'm going to have to kind of skip those topics or we'll run out of time, but I do want to ask you a, a couple of fun Ooh, questions. Fun. Let's do it. Um, so one of the things that I love is food. I'm a, a massive foodie. Um, I've, I've had the luxury of traveling across the globe um, and eating food all over the world. Um, like Dallas is a great one for barbecue and I like going to Thailand and Thai food. I like Italian food. Um, so the, the simple question is going to be, where's been your best meal and what was <sighs> it? My, the best meal of my entire life. Okay. Yeah. So I was at a, um, I'm going to call it a nunnery. <laughs> so it was, it was in uh, Vietnam and I was at a nunnery and we had, I had the best 
vegan lunch of my entire life. I didn't even realize it was vegan food until afterwards. Um, that's, it was just the, it was an art how they were able to craft uh, vegan food um, into just a great meal. So I always look back and and kind of, I was wowed by this very simple uh, temple in Vietnam and all these nuns who were working with, with not much, right? It like, wasn't, they, they were in a fancy kitchen or, you know, they just had fresh food yep. and what they were able to do with that, they just turned it into a masterpiece. So I always kind of look back on that kind of humble lunch and remember, I'm not a vegan. I'm not a vegetarian. I go to a lot of steakhouses for work, but um, I just remember that I was just in awe of how they were just amazing chefs. They would have a Michelin star in my book. If, if I yeah, I mean, <laughs> some of the some of the best food I've ever eaten is is been in Asia. So that that leads me on to I guess kind of my final question is vacations. I always say holidays, but Americans are like what? Um, so vacation. Where it's a twofold question. Where has been the best place you've been on vacation, and where? Have you got on your bucket list to go if you've not already? Oh, I been love there? this question. Um, this one's tough for me. Um, my favorite place uh, was in in Tanzania, um, in, in Africa. I climbed Kilimanjaro in in 2021. Nice. And um, I just fell I fell in love with Africa, the people, uh, the food, um, just the views, uh, just the splendor. Being on top of the mountain amongst the clouds was spectacular. Um, you know, so I, I loved that from the adventure sense, but I always go back to France and Paris. And I, I just love that for the food and the art and the events and the theater and the opera. Like it's just, so for me, I guess it depends. Like if I'm putting my adventure hat on, um, it's Africa and it's, it's glory and the safaris and, and just how breathtaking, uh, Kilimanjaro was, um, and then from like just a day-to-day -day vacation in terms of stimulating my mind in other ways, it's 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 France for me. I would love to have a, a house there one day. Um, bucket list. Ooh, this is really good because I've been actually thinking of this, right? Like where, what's next? Um, I just had a lot of friends go to Antarctica Um recently and i it's been on my 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 friend virginia went a couple years ago with her family and her photos were breathtaking um and then i just had friends go um in december and oh my gosh i just the thrill of that so i would say for me I, i've traveled my mom's a travel agent so i've traveled the world very well traveled so i would say antarctica's on my bucket list yeah i mean funnily enough i've got quite a big bucket list and I, I've actually for Christmas a few years ago, my mum bought me a map that you can scratch yes. off the places That's you've so been. Great. It's not a good idea. I mean, it sounds like a good idea, but it's one of those where it just costs money to go on <laughs> holiday. And and I mean, one of the things that I find about American companies is you don't really do vacation. I mean, we get 25 days a year. Like in Germany or France, they get say thirty-five. It's quite common, and and you get forced to take holiday if if you're in the UK. I mean, I would have to, I would lose my bonus if I didn't take my holiday, uh -huh. and so would my staff. So it, you are, you are enforced, and and it's mandated you take twenty-five days. Um, but I mean, I've had the luxury of living in Japan. I've been to Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. I've travelled across the US. 
So I, just before we wrap, my, my next holiday is going to be to Jordan. So I'm going to go to yes, Petra. Yes, Petra. Oh. Um, so I was lucky to do Angkor Wat. I've done the pyramids. I did the trek to Machu Picchu. Uh, it was hard. I don't advise anyone does it. It was worth it, but it was hard. Petra has been on my list for a long, long time. I booked it three or four years ago to go, and then the pandemic came along, and I, I had to cancel. And now it's three times the price. Um, but I can't wait. I've already bought some books, some travel books, and I've marked up where I want to go. And I also pick restaurants where I want to go. We're going to the Dead Sea, um, going to Amman, going diving in Aquabar. I can't wait. Um, okay, so before we wrap, I would I, I want to thank you. I mean, I, I was nervous about doing this podcast, not because of you, but because I'm flying solo without John. We miss you, um, John. <laughs> we do miss you, and it, but that's okay. It's always a bit d- different without him. Um, but I've had a, a fantastic time speaking to you. I'd definitely like you to come back on. There's so many topics to discuss. Um, and I hope, to be honest, that people listening enjoy it as much as I have. So I, well, I want to thank also, you. I would love to come back on because my 2023 goal is to maybe get a Zero Trust certification if it's from Forrester or, you know, I do think like the CS, CSA and ISC Squared are, are really developing their curriculum there. So we might see that. So um, I, I would love to even come on to talk about maybe my journey into training up. I've done a lot of training, you know, reading books, reading the frameworks, things like that. You know, but still, I have a lot to do, right? Uh, we all have a lot in this area. It's going to be evolving. And so even just taking that kind of aspect would be good as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have you back awesome. on. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, please give The Edge a like and a follow on your favorite podcast service. And also connect with the SSC Forum on LinkedIn. Get all the latest updates and news on the phenom known as the Security Service Edge.